Welcome to the Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 4, Episode 12. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in the Boiler Room, I will give an M&A wrap-up for 2022, as well as give you some talking points over the holidays when friends or family make the comment that they want to own a franchise. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchisors on a monthly basis. Feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. Well, okay, here we are. This is uh, being taped or however you call it. I think that's an old 80s word. Like we used to say, like, let's tape a movie or whatever. <laughs> I was getting dubbed or taped, whatever, on about the 15th of, of December. So we're close to the Christmas holidays. Merry Christmas. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. My wife and I were watching Miracle on 34th Street last night. It's like this from 1949. I think it's kind of an old school post-World War II movie about, you know, trying to prove that Santa Claus is real or not real in a court of law. It's a, quite a kind of a heartwarming and entertaining little movie there. I'm sure we'll hit up. It's a wonderful life. You know, I wonder what your favorite Christmas movie is, right? By the time you hear this, it may be after Christmas, though. So you'd be like, this is old news, Rick. But a couple of things. I like to put up the Christmas tree ornaments like early, like in the, the, the mid-November range before Thanksgiving. You know, that's number one. Number two, I like to bring them down early. But now that we're in Florida and close to New Orleans, I've kind of got this idea that we're going to keep the Christmas trees up, take the lights and all the decorations down and replace them with like purple, yellow and green kind of decorations and make them like Mardi Gras trees and keep them up through March. My wife looks at me like I'm like speaking a different language to her. But doesn't that sound cool? You know, there's a big Mardi Gras tradition in Pensacola. So we may we may try to do that. But I may look a little bit like Clark Griswold on a Christmas Vacation. But we'll get a hold of that movie sometime soon. By the way, European Vacation is probably the most underrated in the, you know, in that series. That's a hilarious one. But I was watching, you know, it shows you how out of style I am. Like a couple of years ago, I was watching Christmas Vacation. And Susan, my wife says, Rick, you've... You've got the same plaid flannel green shirt that Clark Griswold has in the in the show. And I'm looking at it, I'm like, no way, you're right. And so I walk up into my closet and immediately throw it away. But this was like, I was like, man, that was from the 1980s. Like, where where is time gone, man? That's pitiful, right? Maybe you get a giggle out of that. You know, I thought it might be fun. I was sitting, we were, it was a pretty cool thing. And, you know, I was sitting with some friends here locally. A guy, a buddy of mine says, hey, all the guys that you know, let's get together, put $100 in a pot and then go bless somebody over the Christmas holidays, you know, at a restaurant, you know, you know, a place where, you know, people are oftentimes struggling for money. Right. So we sat down in a restaurant with some guys and we we drummed up $3,400 and it was a blessing. And, you know, while I was eating lunch with some of these fellas, I had two guys asked me what it's what it would be like to own a franchise what would i talk and both of them had brothers in law okay so maybe you have a brother in law or maybe you have a sister in law who's like saying i want to quit my job and start a franchise or i may want to be a franchisee one day right so a little bit of humor here over the holidays with a cup of eggnog in your hand you know and and you get that question if you're in this industry like gee i thought i want to be a franchisee maybe one day here's some answers for you okay and this is what i told them at the lunch and this is this is what i'd probably tell a lot of people franchising is not is not easy is it 
You know, it is true that that uh, if you are working in some of the tier one brands across the world, that their failure rates are really, really low. It's not that all of them do really well, but the failure rate of a of a tier one franchise, you know, franchise that's got lots of units and a, a big national presence is way lower than just an independent business, right? Most independent businesses, what do they say? I mean, this is not a stat. This is something I've heard like 60 to 80% of, of startup companies fail over a five-year period, right? So getting into a franchise, you are indeed investing into a proven system with procedures and, you know, buying power and, you know, a plan and hopefully some franchise or support, which is somewhat questionable these days. And if you're buying into a new franchise or something that's new, you're not going to get much marketing support either, right? Because they probably don't have enough units to justify big advertising budgets, either with like uh, print advertising or much on digital, but certainly in the way of television advertising. But nonetheless, you get some of these services you know, what I've noticed over the years, though, is, is the people that ask these questions don't think about the basic premise of what has happened to the franchise business over the last 10 to 15 years. You know, 10 to 15 years ago, someone could still, with their family, operate one or two units of something, and they could make a really good living for themselves, and they could make the decision whether or not to be working in the business as a job and making a really good living or like backing away from a one or two unit business and kind of manage, managing it a little bit, you know, but still even doing that, make a decent enough living to support their family. Okay. That was the, the deal. You know, now fast forward 15 years later and all it takes is for you to look at what you're paying for your own insurance, your, your medical insurance, right? You know, I mean, just as an example or what you're paying in property taxes versus what it used to be. And, and it's no surprise with, with all the food inflation and the cost of labor and everything else, that it's just not the same. The, the, the penny profit and the margin percentages of these businesses have just shrunk dramatically over the past 15 years. And so maybe some people who are trying to get a start off and think they're going to be a 55-year-old pilot and may, may want to you know retire and start a franchise and be a Quiznos franchisee or whatever the heck they would want to do aren't thinking about that. But, you know, the average franchise companies, especially ones that are easy, you know, and quick to get into with not a lot of net worth, if you were going to do a sub shop, for example, and you could get a one unit franchise and it would do on average $700,000, $800,000 in sales. And by the time you you sign up for a lease, you know, and a personal guarantee on the lease and the personal guarantee on the franchise agreement, and now, you know, you've run food and paper and labor costs at 60% of sales, more or less. You're paying royalties and advertising that exceed, you know, a total of 10%, maybe five and five or six and four percent. You know, you're paying seven or eight percent in in lease payments. You've got utilities at three percent or three and a half percent and RM at a point and a half or two points. And then you've got other fixed costs like, you know, cost of employees' uniforms and cleaning supplies and da 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 da. You know, you add all of this up. And your average like low cost franchise to get into is going to, you know, is going to eat up 80% of your, of your 85, probably 85, 90 even percent of your revenues, right? In costs, leaving you with maybe a 10 to 15% margin. That's before paying off any loan that you have to take out, you know, and then let's say the, the loan you, you're paying back is a million dollars or what have you over a 15 year time period. Maybe you get an SBA loan if you're just starting out, right? And it's over 25 years, so the payment's pretty low. Still, that's four or five points probably in sales in terms of the principal and interest, interest payments. And you're left with a business that maybe is making 5% at the bottom line on 800,000 in sales. That's 40 grand. So really what you're doing in that case is buying yourself a job, right? That's what you're doing. You work that business, you're not gonna be able to sit on the beach while, while it's cranking out money 
You're instead going to be either actively involved in the business, drawing a $50,000 salary out of it, and then $40,000 in distributions, and maybe you're eking out a hundred grand, or you're sitting on the sidelines and having other people do it, and basically you're not making much money at all. So now, now you know our industry is driven pretty heavily based on top line sales volume. So if you can do a million two, a million three, a million four, a million five in sales, then you know then if you're you know th then your profit margin may increase because your variable costs are lower. Uh, well, or maybe the, close to the same, but lower, but your fixed costs have stayed the same. So your margins increase and maybe you're running a 15 to 20% margin on a million five. You, five, you pay three or four points to P&I payments and you know, maybe you're, you've got a net margin and you're making a couple hundred grand a year, right? And maybe that's, maybe that's uh, you know, a better model. But, but, I, but I tell people like in most cases, if you're looking at starting one franchise, number one, no one really wants one fr franchisee, one unit franchisee in a premier brand. So people will go to me and they'll say, oh man, I'd love to own a Taco Bell one day. And I say, well, fat chance of owning one Taco Bell. No, no Taco Bell doesn't want a one unit franchisee coming new into the system, right? Unless it's a really special circumstance. So, you know, and even then you got to pay two, two and a half million dollars just to get the thing opened and float startup costs. So instead, what you're looking at is like something smaller with a, you know, with a smaller footprint that has slower sales that's going to be a tougher, you know, hard-nosed deal. And so people just don't do that. I, I probably get, I mean, no kidding, five phone calls a year from people who want to buy one restaurant, maybe less, maybe, maybe two or three calls a year. Isn't that crazy? So back in the good old days, when I first was, you know, getting into the business in the early 2000s, I mean, people wanted to buy one or two restaurants. It was probably, I'd probably get like a hundred calls a year. And now it's only, you know, one, two, three, four, five calls a year. So it's just not a common thing to do unless you want to buy yourself a job, unless you just absolutely love, you know, working as a franchisee, as a manager and putting up with all the headaches that have to happen and then squeezing it out and making a profit that way. Instead, what we see is if the good old boy who's just you know, retired from being a pilot wants to get into a franchise business, first of all, it's unrealistic. They all talk about it. And no one does it. But for the ones who do it, you know, they're going to pull together money and a couple investors and go buy 10 of something, right? Because if you buy seven to 10 of something or more, you've got a big enough GNA structure to then be able to hire what we would call an area coach who's above the restaurant managers who can like field and take all the concerns and calls. You may have to pay them a hundred to $110,000 a year, whatever the number is with salary and bonus. But but at least you're not taking that 4 a.m. call when someone slipped and fall in the uh, you know in the in the bathroom, right? So that's kind of the sweet spot for what used to be the one or two unit operator is somebody who wants seven to ten of something. That's kind of like the entry point, unless there are you know in a couple of instances where you have you know maybe some some you know, foreign people coming in and they want to you know kind of bring their family to fully work in the restaurant. That that's a rare case where it's different. Or you see people who are like this 55-year-old pilot who are migrating and turning towards different types of franchises. For example, you see like the mosquito type franchises where you've got like, you only have like six people working for you and you're scheduling it and, you know, they're walking around and they're, you know, spraying the grounds for mosquitoes. And it's kind of a low labor, high scheduling model with low product cost and pretty high margins, right? That would be that would be something you see someone getting into outside of restaurants if they want to stay smaller with a lower capital investment. That's just one example.
you know, I've seen people get into like distribution businesses. I've got two friends actually who have in the last year gotten into like the, you know, the package delivery model where they're like a licensee or, or like of Amazon or, or a FedEx or something where they're running trucks to uh, deliver packages as a separate business. I know that's a very hard model with really low margins and it's really hard to find, you know, people to drive trucks and there's liability with it too. But, but I have two buddies who've done that one, one, I think somewhat successfully and the other, not, not so much so, but that's a, that's a model you see, but, but that's the first thing I see. I, I, you know, I say, I say, you know, no one really goes into anything looking to be a one unit franchisee anymore. Therefore your brother-in-law's comment is an unrealistic comment and he's going to fall on his face or (laughs) he's going to buy himself a job, you know, which, which I know he doesn't want at 55 years old, you know, so, and, and, and the industry has indeed become one of, you know, more professional management, you know, more systemization, larger franchisees, consolidation. So there you go. Now I'm not saying that that's all that good in many cases. I mean, in many cases it is. The consistency is probably there on a b- bigger scale than what it used to be back in the good old days when you had two unit franchisees from here to everywhere, and you didn't know exactly what menu products you were going to get when you were going into a store in Montana versus a store in Texas, right? But also the failure rate is also more, you know, like a bigger percentage of your system is now dependent upon a smaller number of franchisees succeeding or failing, right? So the concentration risk as a franchisor is quite a bit higher, which is why, you know, you start to see, I think, at the franchisor level, a little bit of a pushback from kind of large private equity groups getting into a system and trying to roll up and be too big within a system. I think if I had to characterize my opinion of how franchisors feel, and I know this is just my opinion, but many of them would probably say, well, the one and two unit franchisee is not the future of our brand. Probably we need that. We need a, a, an avenue to get those franchisees out of the system and a way to consolidate, to get more sophisticated, more capitally stable uh, franchisees to own more units and have more control uh, but at the same time, they probably don't don't want too many stores in the hands of too few operators because then if there is a systemic issue or even just a one franchisee issue in their brand, guess what happens, man? Then like all of a sudden, 400 of your 4,000 stores go down, right? Or, or they go into bankruptcy or something terrible happens and the stores shut down. That like meaningfully impacts your brand. Uh, I think there's also a, a, a quiet way to to be thinking about the, you know, kind of like where we were in the early I'd say the early teens of, you know, like 2010, 2008, 2007, 2012, kind of in this time frame where you had a lot of 20 and 30 unit operators that still knew the restaurants, still knew the people who managed their businesses, but yet had, a, you know, kind of a, you know, more sophisticated from a capital perspective and an operations perspective with better teams. So, you know, that's kind of a sweet spot that I know a lot of franchisors want to be, want to be aiming towards. Okay, so that's I don't know that help you. Is that a way to to get cousin Eddie off your back when 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 you're meeting with them over the holidays and he says I want to own a franchise, right? Uh, another thing is if they're if they're cousin Eddie and cousin Eddie's forty five years old, tell him to put on a pair of non skid shoes and stand for ten hours, you know, in the back of a restaurant, and then and then you know that'll that'll pretty much fix that <laughs> issue. All right, a couple of other things I just note for the end of the year. 
First would be, you know, we do have kind of some more information on the FAST Act that's coming out in California. It looks like, at least from what I'm hearing, that they have gotten enough votes to to get the, this quorum of, you know, of, of franchisees, franchisors and, you know, people in the industry on a board in California to figure out wages, you know, that most most surely will will raise minimum wage up to $22 in steps. It looks like that is is probably going to get postponed. I mean, I you know, I, I think it has to be asserted that those votes are are, are indeed votes, but but it sounds like there's way more than enough votes needed to delay putting it put putting this team together and this process together until 2024, which will give franchisees and franchisors a little bit more time to think about their strategy. Maybe their strategy involves raising their prices a little bit, which is always difficult to do during a recession. Maybe it uh, it should cause most people in California to be evaluating, and and I say evaluating fairly soon, actually in the next like ninety days, right? Evaluating their M and A and strategic plans. You know, a lot of people, if you were going to get out of the business, there's no sense in in sticking around for another two years and then have it go to a ballot with a presidential election in California, and then maybe it gets passed. And then, and then you hit the big wage increases potentially, you know, and at that point in time, EBITDA takes such a tremendous drop that the value, value of the business could be, could be in bad shape. But if you're, you know, it could be an opportunity for a buyer. It could also be opportunity for somebody who's a, a seller to get out in front of it. They may have been given a reprieve if this does get delayed and it may, it may be something to, uh, to take advantage of. Let's see. We continue to see a pretty big bifurcation of performance across brands. Man, some brands are doing really, really well right now, and some are struggling, both with costs, with revenues. So traffic is continuing to be a bit of an issue, as you might expect. Not as many boots in, in you know coming into the restaurants, but pricing has come up so much that we do have some brands that are really hot from a sales perspective, and I'm really encouraged by that. That may portend really well for 2023. But then you have some that are still, you know, maybe really languishing in that regard. So you just got to be careful in different areas of the country as well. And then, you know, depending on whether you were a brand that was like right now, chicken wings are noticing a massively significant reduction in food cost, big time reduction in food cost, right? But, you know, some franchisors who, who you know, have locked in prices, you know, and they locked them in from November to November, for example, may be looking at another 10 or 11 months of really high pricing, and prices are still really high, but 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 I think some some of the prices are coming down depending on the type of commodity that you're most in. If you're cheese, if you're chicken, if you're beef, if you're you know, so that obviously has a, a big role to play for for the profitability of, of, of these brands brand to brand, and and you can see some major differences in the P and Ls because of it. ERC money is an interesting one, right? So a lot of uh, this is employee retention credit money. A lot of big franchisees depending on the state they were in, were able to petition the federal government because it was money. You know, it's taxable if you receive it, I do believe. Check that, but I'm pretty sure it is. So if you get a big ERC, you know, if you're a big franchisee and you get a $5 million ERC check, don't spend all of it in one place. You've got $2 million that's probably due back to the government in the form of taxes. Be, be You know, ask your CPA about that. But I do think that people are starting to get their ERC checks. In a lot of cases for large franchisees, it is a lot of money. And my hope and my kind of intuition here is that that's going to mean that they're going to re, be reinvesting in deals in 2023. So I do think once we get into Q2 and Q, you know uh, of 2023, as these ERC credits you know continue to roll through, you're just going to see people flush with more cash. 
no real place to put it and a lack of deals on the market from an M&A perspective. And I think you're going to see people that have a little bit of money in their pocket and want to burn it and spend it. So that's a good thing. That's maybe an external factor for the M&A industry that, that, that maybe people aren't thinking about as much that might be able to combat a little bit of the rising interest rates, right? So obviously rising interest rates are, are a thing. The Fed moved the Fed funds target rate up 50 basis points today on the, what, the 14th of December and uh, they're targeting 4.25 to 4.5%. And they see another 75 basis points or so increase by year-end 2023 that might kind of drift towards the 5 to 5.25% range. You know, I think that's a little bit more of a push for increased interest rates than maybe what people were expecting. So I think we're probably going to see the first quarter of 2023 bring another interest rate hike. You know, and so cap rates are steadily rising as that happens in valuations. I mean, I think valuations from an EBITDA perspective have moderated a little bit, not a ton. We don't have enough data. I think I've said this before. There's not enough data still. It's really quiet in the marketplace at the moment to know exactly how much pricing has changed for most businesses because we just, you know, just don't have enough data. So, you know, I think we're going to see that come, you know, switch around a little bit in 2023 as things open up a little bit. But I mean, any any man's guess or any woman's guess would be that that uh, that, that EBITDA multiples, the valuations of these businesses themselves are probably coming down just a little bit depending on the brand. But if you, again, if I've said it before, if you've got a great asset with a great brand and it's really in demand, I don't think you're going to see price drop at all on the EBITDA multiple, you know, kind of front, maybe... Maybe some of this flush with cash stuff that I talked about earlier is the reason why people are sitting on a lot of money and their businesses are doing okay and they have nowhere else to spend it, right? And so, you know, and, and as the system across the country gets gets loaded with with larger franchisees who have investors, I mean, these investors are looking for growth. And one of the ways you grow, I mean, there's multiple ways you can grow your investors' return, right? You can buy a business and operate it more profitably, pay down debt aggressively, and you can hit a single doing that, you know. Another way to do it is you buy a business and then you start building, you know, and that's obviously difficult and slow. That's the problem with that, you know. And if you have a big business, building 10 units on a base of 200 stores doesn't really move the needle a whole lot. But that's another way you can clearly grow your portfolio and grow your, grow, you know, your investors' returns. And then, and then obviously another one is to grow through, through mergers and acquisitions, right? You know, you, you pick up a business that you add on as a tack on acquisition. It might fit in because it's in one of your tangential markets and you don't have to really add a whole lot of GNA structure to it in order to fold it into your business. And then maybe there's an opportunity to improve margins and, and grow sales. And that's largely, you know, not in every case, but in most cases going to be the way that people are growing their returns to their shareholders. So hopefully we get more into that because I mean, gosh, in the third and fourth quarter of 2022, it has been pretty bone dry, man. There hadn't been a, a ton of activity. And so, you know, you kind of you, you kind of start pivoting to more long-term projects that you haven't been able to think about because you're just with the here and now, right? 2021 especially is like such a crazy year. But uh, there, are, there are times in the afternoons where I have some time on my hands now because the deal flow has been so slow in the third and fourth quarter. Let's expect and hope that that'll pick up. I think a couple more comments I would make that I've seen in the last couple of months that maybe I haven't talked about recently is that franchisors are becoming much more heavy handed in the approval process. There are agendas abound depending on the brand and depending on the circumstance. Some franchisors, though, are becoming much more conciliatory and easy to work with because they realize they have to kind of relinquish some of their old ways in order to get franchisees 
new franchisees attracted to their to their brand because their economics aren't what they used to be, right? And so a lot of this is just the normal push and pull of a relationship. When you think you're on top of everybody and you have an asset that everybody else wants or a brand that everyone else wants to get into, you can pretty much dictate the terms and the attitudes of what happens. If it's the other way where maybe you're eating some humble pie and you had a brand that's kind of fallen from grace and has fallen on really hard times, you know, you have to change the way you do business. You can't do business the same way, expect to be the kingpin in the ivory tower and have people want to get into your brand and do the good things that makes your brand succeed, right? You've got to, got to negotiate. You've got to, you got to listen. You've got to, you know, you've got to concede, you, you know, and so there's that, that is happening in, I think, more rapid ways than I've ever seen it in my business. Okay. How about this? That was a tall statement. In 20 years of doing this, I think I've seen the influence and the attitudes of franchisors change more now and in the last six months, let's say, than it has in the prior 20 years. And that's either either tightening or loosening, either more demanding and borderline threatening or open-minded and conciliatory and amiable or whatever the word is. So, you know, take that for what it's worth, but, but, but keep in mind, you know, keep that in mind as you think about franchising. A couple other points. Let's see. Yes, starting to hear about distressed deals. So in the last month or so, I've quietly heard of a couple of bankruptcy processes that are happening for large franchisees and several brands that have not done well. Typically, it's one of these things where, uh, you know, there's a bankruptcy in place and they're trying to, you know, shed creditors, right? You know, I guess probably, you know, uh, landlords, clearly, you know, the the lender that can't pay the lender anymore. They're, they're trying to kind of get out of some of the franchisor obligations to potentially, who knows, but there's just a bunch of obligations they can no longer fulfill, right? So, you know, we've seen and heard of a couple of bankruptcies here in the last month or so, and then a couple of of quiet deals where banks are calling around trying to shop their debt, you know, and are willing to take a take a haircut for somebody to step in and take them out of their position. If you are a bank and you have had a lot of recent restaurant investments and um, and they haven't done well. It is—is is it a surprise? I mean, what strategy would you use if you're in the pickup truck with me and we're sitting looking at each other and we're like, okay, we've got 50 loans to franchisees, and you know, maybe 20 of them are missing their covenants, and of those 20, maybe 10 of them are in are in pretty bad shape, and five of them are in awful shape, right? You know, we'd look at each other, and I think what we'd probably say is, okay, well, let's let's loosen the burden on these folks and try to you know buy more time to get them. To, to get them turned around. So maybe you might loosen the condif- the financial conditions for them. Maybe you might take out the penalties or reduce the interest rates. I mean, it's, it's hard to do some of these things, okay? But you may do some of these things. And then, and then you may say, okay, well, if we're going to take a whack on five to 10 franchise deals that we're going to, you know, that, that may go into bankruptcy, let's get in front of it and try to do one or two at a time. So you wouldn't choose to blast all of them on the market at once, I wouldn't think. I think you would try to kind of slow walk it and sprinkle them out so that your portfolio, which is probably backed by a public company of some kind, you know, doesn't take a massive hit at once, right? So I, I don't know. This is just my opinion, but that's kind of what I think we are, we are seeing and will continue to see in the start of 2023. You know, remember that January and February of last year was Omicron, right? So once we get past the January, February timeframe, you know, deals still typically trade on a trailing 12 month basis. And I think if you're looking at March, 2023, you know, or maybe February, 2023 through March of 2022, that, that kind of 12 month rolling 12 month basis, you're going to start seeing, I think more, you know, obviously during that time period, you're, you know, you're going to have really elevated commodity costs because of inflation. But at least 
You've cut out probably a couple of months of really bad sales performance. If you remember how bad it was with Omicron at the beginning of 2022, right? For like a small three or four week window, like things kind of semi shut down, right? At the beginning of the year, if you remember that, you know, if not, not like maybe government shut down, but just like in the hearts and minds of people, it's like, oh crap, here it comes again, right? So, so, so I think you, you know, you, you've got that going. So, so, so I think that'll precipitate a little bit more deal flow in 2023. And, you know, hopefully it'll be met with, with, with buyers that have capital from that, that, that they've kept on the sidelines from the last, you know, year, year and a half or so. It's hard to believe, but a year, year and a half or so. Let's see. What else would I, would I say to expect going forward? Yeah. So I guess, I guess I made another point here that I'm not sure what deal flow will look like. I mean, I don't know. My gut tells me that we're going to be up in, in the first quarter. It might start slowly, but probably by the time we hit March, we'll be, you know, maybe within, you know, we'll be at maybe 80, 75 to 80 percent of normal kind of activity. And I think I said this on a prior podcast. I mean, who knows if all of those deals close? You know, advisors like Unbridal are going to tell you, you know, kind of like you're going to give you like a conservative view of your valuation and be realistic because we're in tune with the interest rate environment and the somewhat difficulty of, you know, of, of the lending market and the underwriting market at the moment and kind of what the ongoing business conditions are like. So, I mean, make sure you, you understand like the setup pretty, pretty clearly if you're going to enter into a process of selling your company, you know, because the worst thing you can do, like the biggest mistake you could make is to put something up for sale and have everybody in their neighbor find out about it and your employees get pissed off and decide to start quitting. And then the deal doesn't happen or it flounders and languishes over a too long of a time period because, you know, your, your, your decision was built not on a brick foundation, but on a foundation of straw, right? Or sand. You don't want that to happen. So, so be cautious and be careful who you receive advice from. From. Cash offers are going to be a thing and no contingency offers are going to be a thing. So if you listen to this and let's say you're a, uh, you know, and I think there are a lot of you who listen to the podcast who are like this, like a 33 year old Gucci shoes wearing, you know, Wall Street guy on a subway, right? Uh, with a, with a Rolex watch and if and air you know airpods in your ears headed to the office right and you're a private equity uh, vice president or maybe you're a senior associate or something like this and you're uh, trying to listen for deal flow and figure out what the market and the industry is going to be like like i i, I just think um, that's a takeaway that that's going to increase your strength is if you can make uh, you know offers that are not so contingent upon financing you know, cash offers, even for smaller deals and even for mid-sized deals are going to be the ones that I, I, th I think that in 2023, if they exist in a process like what we run, I think you'll find that, uh, that, that sellers are going to be more receptive to that than they have been in the past, just because they see it as, as less of a risk, right? And specifically with real estate financing, because cap rates have changed so much, like, you know, real estate financing with changing cap rates introduces risk. So if sale leasebacks are a portion of financing and acquisition that you look at, you know, just know that like a seller should be, if he's not, should be wary of, of like what type of assumptions you've made and what type of pricing you're basing your price on. Because changing cap rates, could, you know, in a real estate rich deal can obviously have a big impact on price if there's a, a miss, if there's a miss. So that's something to, to keep in mind. And then 
You know, I, I think I continue to see more and more non-restaurant brands popping up and people that I, I, I become a little bit surprised, but people kind of diversifying away from restaurants. And, and you know, I was just talking with a guy who's getting into the, uh, you know, in the car wash business pretty substantially. And that's a model that's starting to get built out, right? Now, who knows whether the car wash model specifically is something that does well during a recession or does well as people like, I don't know if like going to electric cars has anything to do with car washes, probably not. But, you know, maybe maybe it's a luxury during a recession in some places. I'm not sure. But but that market has been one with a couple of national players and a lot of consolidation that, that's been out there. High margins like and then also low, low number of employees, which is something that like every business owner like really kind of smiles when they, you know, like and warms their heart when they can invest in a business model that has high margins predictable revenues and low employees, you know, right. I mean, makes the business easier to run. You know, I, I ran into a guy the other day who's fairly well capitalized and he's into the uh, detailing business, detailing franchise business and has a number of these locations. And, and I, I, I just think you're going to continue to see, you know, more, more of that as we push forward. So keep your mind open to other types of franchises. Now, if you're a large consolidator, you're a family office or private equity firm, or you already own a big business, it's kind of hard to start into a new brand that's only going to have two or three or four units, or you have to grow it from scratch, right? That's just kind of like what we call a slow boat to China. So that might not be the right model for you, but for somebody who already has 10 units of one brand to pick up like a five unit, you know, kind of non-restaurant brand in a contiguous market to be able to grow that out to 10 units and to have two legs of your stool that are totally kind of different in nature. I just think that's something that, that, that we'll see more of in 2023 because the labor situation has been a pressure. And the labor situation is, is, is one that I think, you know, and, and, and the corresponding profit swings in the, in heavy labor model businesses, it's just, it's just something to keep note of as we move forward, as we look towards automation and as we look to other investments and other franchise businesses that are less labor centric to deliver the profitability in the business model. I think that's about uh, it for this year. I just maybe make a shout out and, and a big thank you to all of you who faithfully listen to this podcast. I hope you find it encouraging. Maybe I throw in a little bit of humor in there. I don't know about the cheesy humor, but uh, I know a lot of franchisors also listen to this podcast. So uh, I'm, I'm thankful for that too. And franchisees, lenders, private equity groups, family offices. You know, if there's anything we can ever do for you, all you have to do is holler in this business for the long term. Love it. We're going to see some changes in 2023 and uh, just hope you, you know, have a Merry Christmas and a, and a Happy New Year and look forward to catching you on the backside and when we're fresh. Take care. Thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes webinars, podcasts, videos, white papers, and a list of our past M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital Advisors LLC give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom. Thank you.